Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to today's meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton, the founder of Climate One. Today we're talking about the road to Copenhagen. The United Nations negotiations uh, now underway are scheduled to conclude in Copenhagen in December with a successor to the Kyoto Protocol. Countries that sign a possible Copenhagen Treaty would then have three years to ratify the New Deal before the Kyoto Agreement expires in 2012. That's the idea, anyway, of climate negotiators and advocates. Is the world on track for a landmark deal that puts a price on carbon pollution for the first time? What are the keys to achieving a global compact among developed and developing countries? Will the U.S. pass domestic climate legislation? What will the... the, uh, that agreement look like? What will the U.S. legislation look like? Joining us to discuss these questions are John Bryson, chairman and CEO of Edison International, parent of Southern California Edison, and one of the largest electric utilities in the U.S. He is also a co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Bill Riley is chair of ClimateWorks, a new initiative backed by philanthropic foundations. He's also a senior advisor to the Texas Pacific Group and former administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under President George H.W. Bush. Larry Schweiger is president of the National Wildlife Federation and vice chair of the board of Al Gore's Alliance for Climate Protection. He also is chair of the Green Group, which is a group of... uh, large environmental organizations in Washington, D.C. So please give a warm welcome to our panel today. Uh, Bill Riley, let's start with you. You uh, uh, encouraged the first President Bush to go to the Rio summit in 1992. Can you set the stage for us uh, as far as where we are on the road to Copenhagen? Uh, what's the basic uh, framework? What's, what's, what deals on the table there? Well, I, I did. Uh, I did encourage the first President Bush to go to Rio. Uh, you remind me that that I didn't do that um, with uh, that much enthusiasm, at least bef- a few months before the conference, when there were the same kinds of uncertainties and uh, incongruities and different countries' expectations, and um, frankly, conflicting signals coming from the government of Brazil about whether they were prepared, even logistically, for the fourteen thousand press and all of the other people who descended on Rio. 
I received an invitation from Prince Charles about six months before that conference to join him in Belém and to sail up the Amazon for the better part of three days on the Britannia uh, and accepted that invitation, among other reasons, um, because uh, the president of Brazil and the three key ministers, foreign minister, environment minister, and energy minister, were all going to be on board. And I was able to say to them, the president uh, there, you're giving so many conflicting signals about how this conference is to come off Uh, You don't appear to be prepared, in our view, at this time to uh, consummate a number of the relationships and agreements that we had anticipated would be on the table there. And I'm not going to recommend that the president come, in the middle of a political campaign particularly, unless we get some assurances. And I did get those assurances, and and President Kalor was as good as his word. He said, I promise to make this work for President Bush. Uh, Sixty-five heads of state are, are awaiting his decision as to whether he comes. So it's vital to Brazil that he attend. And I say that because a lot of the same kinds of conflicting expectations and uh, incongruous uh, demands are being uh, brooded about now, and we read about them in the press, uh, different countries dissatisfied with the uh, lack of interest or um, pusillanimous uh, commitments that uh, appear thus far to be under consideration in the negotiations, And, and would simply say that a lot can come together There are many reasons why some people will find it in their interest to elevate expectations for the conference and others to begin to dumb them down a little bit. And you will see both happening in the months to come. The really important uh, thing is that, uh, in my experience at least, most of the substantive agreements that are reached at international conferences of any significance are baked substantially before the meeting begins. If they are not, then people will find a way, certainly in a conference of this public uh, recognition and significance, to uh, make it a success anyway and to uh, have Copenhagen too, which will then be understood to have a cleanup responsibility. I think personally that um, it's, it's extremely important, obviously it's extremely important that Copenhagen be a success and be seen to be a success and, the, and I believe that it will be. Uh, what is being baked right now is very important. The United States administration is committed now to address the climate problem in a serious way. That has enormous consequences for the attitudes of many other countries, and most notably for China. The um, patience with the Obama administration, I think, will be considerable in Copenhagen, even though, as I expect, we do not have completed enacted statutory commitments to a carbon tax or to carbon reductions by that time. The um, Chinese are um, very unhappy with the uh, legislation, we understand, that has come out of the Waxman-Markey uh, conversations, and they wish to see a 40% reduction Uh, from 1990 levels in the part of the United States, which is certainly not in the cards. But these are early negotiating positions, I think. Once we do have some reasonably clear path in the United States, I believe that the Chinese, who now are speaking of climate change as a challenge which must be addressed, they were not willing to do that up until relatively recently. They talked about the need for more energy efficiency in their economy, but they considered the climate responsibility, largely that of the countries that had committed to the accumulated carbon dioxide, that is very promising. And uh, the the Germans, of course, have committed to uh, at least a 20% reduction in carbon dioxide. They are the 
the greenest of the large powers, a 30% reduction if they think the agreement that comes out of Copenhagen is serious. European Union has already committed to 20% and has said uh, publicly that they will commit to that reduction irrespective of what the rest of the world does. That is both good and bad. I think they've kind of uh, lost a little bit of their negotiating leverage uh, as a result, but, but uh, they're, they're greener and certainly more publicly green than, than many other countries. Um, and you have other positions. The Japanese are simply waiting to find out what they should do and prepared apparently to do something very significant, though on a purely voluntary basis. They do not want mandatory constraints in law on their economy, which is an interesting position. However, voluntary in Japan means that Kyoto Gas and Electric and, and Tokyo Electric will do what the voluntary commitment of the government of Japan is, unlike in our country where business would go the other way <laughs> and has. So uh, I gather Singapore wants a tax, thinks there's no way that you could set up a congruent cap-and-trade system internationally. In other words, there's a lot that's still being baked. But I think it's extremely positive that the focus of countries is now seriously on the climate issue, particularly given all the other distractions that they have in the current economic situation, that when they get there, the uh, weight of the world's um, expectations and attentions will itself have influence on the negotiators. And if not at the conference specifically in Copenhagen, then in Copenhagen too, we will get something that uh, I think can cause us to breathe a little more easily that this problem is being given or will soon be given the attention that the number one threat to the planet deserves. Before we uh, hear from Larry Schweiger, I'd like to follow up and just ask whether you think that the, the basic architecture of a big all-in-one global deal is, is the way to go uh, compared to some different bilateral or sectoral agreements that might be, you know, different pieces that add up to a whole. Is, are you still think that the sort of the all-in-one, the granddaddy hmm. treaty is, is uh, viable and, and preferred? You know, I honestly think the original concept of the global deal, which was going to be uh, agreements and uh, substantial transfers of funding and technology to the developing countries in return for their taking the climate problem seriously. I don't think that's, seri- that's still on the table. I was asked at a conference in India uh, some weeks ago uh, whether the United States was prepared to uh, play according to those rules and said, well, I guess it really depends on China and Japan, whether they'll give us the money that we then can give back to, to <laughs> India. Uh, and, you know, we're no longer in that position. And I don't think politically uh, that's in the cards. Some kind of uh, offset uh, pr- program, some kind of um, uh, exchange that occurs as a consequence of the business interest of companies in the United States and the developed countries uh, essentially buying reductions as a competitive kind of choice, an economically intelligent decision given the price of carbon, I think that's still very much in the cards. So I think that probably will happen. Whatever else uh, happens uh, in Copenhagen, I don't think there should be a deal that precludes the possibility of important bilateral relationships and even some sectoral commitments uh, so that you don't get in the position of the laggard swinging the, uh, the whole train. Um, and, I, and I think people are sensitive to that, and I don't think that will happen. Thank you. Uh, Larry Schweiger, you're in Washington and very involved with uh, 
U.S. domestic legislation. Tell us uh, your take on the Waxman-Markey bill. Uh, how far does it go? Uh, where is it strong and where is it weak? And how does it relate to – generally people think the U.S. needs to have a strong legislation to go to Copenhagen in a strong position. Well, I think it's important to start with what we need to do in Copenhagen. And, our, you know, the long-term goal is to keep uh, our planet from going – uh, not warming over two degrees centigrade. So <clears throat> if we're thinking in those terms, you're talking about 350 to 450 parts per million. You know, <clears throat> some would suggest it needs to be lower. Some would suggest that we can go higher. But that's generally the range that we're aiming at. So when you, when you think about how we're proceeding domestically, you know, I think it's fair to say that it's going to be hard for us in the first go-around to get to a, even to a 450 world with a bill that is moving through Congress now. But that bill is the beginning point, not the end point for for climate uh, uh, strategies. I think uh, Bill mentioned coming back uh, again, perhaps at Copenhagen too. Um, Congress right now is not willing or able to do uh, what science requires us to do. So what we have is is in both uh, uh, Congressman Waxman <clears throat> Congressman Markey, uh, Speaker Pelosi, and so many other people of goodwill are trying to get to the first step. And this bill has a lot of important pieces in it for that first step. There are some 32 embedded tools in the, the bill itself that have uh, different uh, aspects of, of getting to that goal. The most important probably of those is the cap itself, which is set at about a 17% reduction over the next 10 years. Uh, certainly, uh, there are those of us who would like to see that higher. I'm sure there are others in the business world who would like to see it lower. And uh, the chances are that we'll probably uh, be able to hold it at 7%, 17% in the House. Uh, there is, in addition to that, a number of other ways in which we save and reduce uh, carbon emissions by uh, efficiencies and appliances. There's a whole new set of building standards that are going to come into play. Uh, there's also... Um, uh, the offsetting, uh, and that will uh, get us an additional uh, percentage or two uh, internationally if it uh, is set up correctly and works well. Uh, so, you know, is it a perfect bill? No, but it's the bill that we can get through Congress. And I, and I should say something about this, the sponsors, about Senator, um, I'm sorry, Congressman Waxman and, and Congressman uh, Markey. They, they are two uh, very committed lawmakers who've been around the Hill for many, many years, who know how to navigate the system. Frankly, they've put together the best bill that they can get. Uh, they, they're working very hard to make sure that they get moderate Democrats to the table because we only had one Republican. Um, uh, Mary uh, Bono Mack uh, was the only Republican to vote for that bill in the House committee. Uh, we're hoping that we pick up more uh, House Republicans in the full House vote. But clearly, they had a craft a bill that worked for the moderate Democrats. Uh, they had a craft a bill that, that addressed um, the, the cost uh, of uh, carbon to the consumers, and so there are mechanisms in the bill to, to uh, help uh, consumers in that process. And there's also funding in that bill to help wildlife and other natural resources for adaptation purposes. There's about $1.7 billion a year that will be available over the life of the program. So there are a number of really important elements that are in place. Uh, I think it's an important first step. I think we need to press forward in the House and in the Senate. Uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to take up a similar bill. Do you think the Senate will strengthen or weaken the bill? Well, it depends what you're looking at. I, I think there may be some uh, 
pieces in this in the bill that could get strengthened in the Senate. There are also some pieces that may get weakened. It's it's still unclear. Uh, we do have some experience in the Senate. Um, for example, uh, last year we had the um, the the uh, bill that moved uh, uh, to the floor of the Senate. Warner uh, Warner Lieberman. The Warner yeah. Lieberman. Before that, we had uh, we had McCain uh, Lieberman bill moved, but neither one of those bills took away the power of EPA to to do the things that EPA currently has the power to do. So there's a chance of addressing that in the Senate to get that back in because certainly I don't think we want to remove any powers from EPA to enforce the existing clean air laws, uh, particularly as it relates to carbon. Uh, so, uh, so I think there are some places in the Senate where we can make improvements. And don't forget we have the, the final conference committee that uh, hammers out the differences and there may be some improvements there as well. But I, I, I think it's important for all of us to you know, not let the perfect get, a, get ahead of good here. We, this is a good bill. It's a good foundation. It will enable us to go to Copenhagen uh, in a respectful way uh, and to uh, present to the world a pathway that perhaps can lead to uh, additional commitments from others. And I think also there's a, there's a provision in the current bill to allow scientists to look back, to actually see how we're doing and match that up to the goals of the uh, Copenhagen Agreement so that we know uh, one way or the other from a scientific standpoint whether we're making the right kind of progress, and if not, to send off some clear signals to, to, to the Congress that we need to tighten up and to the rest of the world that we need to move more swiftly. So it's not perfect, but it's a start. Uh, let's talk a little bit about drilling into the, the money aspect, because a lot of the fights is, is about uh, you know, where the economic burden hits and where, where the money goes, both within the United <laughs> States. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I'd like to get to Bill and talk about internationally between countries, you know, how the money's going to flow, because that's a big part of this is ultimately people say in countries, yeah, this is great, we want to do it, but what's it going to cost me, my country, my country, uh, my company, myself? So... The estimate for the average consumer is that it will cost about a postage stamp a day is the pricing if you look at it from EPA, which is not a whole lot. Uh, postage stamps are going up, but not that much. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, some of the mechanisms in the bill that, uh, are this uh, so-called allocation issue, and that is for some people very controversial. There are, there are folks in our community who would like to just simply make a tax collect this money, and then redistribute it to everybody in the country in, a, in an even sort of way. The problem with that is if you're living in Indiana, you know, about 90-plus uh, percent of your total electric bill is produced by coal, and so you're, you're a high-carbon uh, uh, consumer. Uh, if you're in another state, perhaps uh, uh, Oregon or Washington, where you have a lot of your energy being generated by, by uh, um, run-of-the-river uh, turbines, you have a very different situation. So it's not fair just to collect the, the carbon tax and redistribute it in an even way. And that's the reason why the early uh, proposals to do that were not uh, well received in Congress. There are too many members who have, uh, you know, have concerns about that kind of distribution. But 80% of the total revenue collected under this program will go to public purpose. Another 20% will go to help, uh, for example, the steel industry make the transition to help some of the other industries involved uh, make that transition. So it is, if you look at the way the money is being spent, it actually advances the overall cause in, uh, in a way that uh, 
you know, helps us to solve the problem. Now, critics would say that, that a lot of votes have been bought in coal states, that the auctions, both President Obama and, and Governor Schwarzenegger wanted to have 100% of these permits auctioned off. Now mm-hmm. I think uh, it's 15 or 20%, and that basically critics say on both the left and the right that Congress bought votes from conservative Democrats in coal states, and, of course, that's what, you know, that's, maybe that's the way things work, but you know, could you comment on that? I, I think um, there are two ways to look at it. One, it starts off low, but it, gro- it grows year by year, and so the so the auction will actually become 100% uh, at the, at a future point. So, um, you know, the notion that we're given money early on is um, you know is problematic to some people. In terms of buying folks off, I, I, th- I would rather characterize it getting to the vote. You know. The, the, the magic of this thing is if you can't get the votes to pass the bill, it doesn't matter how pure and how white, or, you know, clean the bill is in, in every way. It matters that you can get the votes to pass it. And so you have to work with people to solve pro- problems that they see. And I, I actually think uh, Congressman Waxman did that. I think that uh, he uh, went across to, uh, to, the, to the Blue Dog Democrats, to, to uh, members like Congressman Doyle, and sat down and said, what, what do we need to, to solve your problems? And, and what they needed was to help some of the industries, the heavy industries that needed to get through the next few years. And I think that was a part of that process. And if you have problems with that, you probably shouldn't be involved in the legislative process because that's the nature of this. It's, it's like watching sausages, someone the has, sausages, yeah. has pointed out in the past. But, you know, it's really, that is the messy part of it. But it's it's an important part, and, and I think... Waxman is very good at getting the best deal for the American public, and I think that's what we have. I would just add, if I might, to that. Uh, he had better get some of the coal state senators one way or the other. There are something like, there are more than 50 of them, yeah. so, right. and, and an equivalent number of percentage in the House. So that's vitally important. With respect to allocation, um, it's, it, it is an issue, and now there are some proposals. I saw an op-ed yesterday from three energy executives who want to... Uh, who want to increase it more, reduce the auction even more, and that's that's got uh, a number of my friends upset about it. You know, we didn't we did the Clean Air Act the first time, fully allocated, no auction. If you if you look at the situation of a coal-fired power company in uh, the state you mentioned, Indiana, with an auction, they've got first of all to figure out how to reduce their carbon cost by uh, converting to natural gas or finding a way to scrub, or rather, to sequester the uh, carbon, um, and then they've also got to pay for the permits? I mean, it, it really would be a big hit, and of course Senator Bayh is not going to vote for that, uh, and, and neither are a lot of other senators whom we really do need. So I, I, from, the, from an environmentalist point of view, I wouldn't break my pick on the allocation versus auction mm-hmm. issue or number. Uh, I, I, think, I think that uh, the Waxman-Markey bill produced a, a plausible, realistic, reasonably prudent approach to this, and... Um, and it deserves, uh, in some areas, some, some improvement, but uh, I think is a very credible bill. John Bryson, you've done a lot of work on uh, thinking about the least cost path to reducing carbon. We're talking here about the money flow. So what do you see as, as the important ingredients of, of getting to carbon reductions at the lowest possible path? And, could, and could you say how you like BART? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like BART. And your yeah, carbon... I like Southwest Airlines a lot, but Southwest Airlines didn't do as well as it normally does <laughs> today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, least cost paths. Well, let me just start by saying that you know, this is a global, this is a uniquely global challenge, climate change. Uh, 
And unless we find least cost paths to carry out greenhouse gas reduction, transform our economies, we simply will be less successful in the critical job of reducing these greenhouse gas emissions. So least cost is, is kind of a paradigm thought here. What is the least cost? You know, I'll start with a huge generality. Um, the, the Waxman bill, most careful thinkers about what the U.S. needs to do here, envision a 2050 target that is a reduction on the order of 85 percent, it may be 83 percent, it may be 80 percent, but a reduction across our total economy, U.S. economy, of that order of magnitude, so almost total carbon reduction in the economy, and almost all observers, close observers, believe that carbon at current levels will continue to grow over the next several years, even with the best energy efficiency technology and so on steps. So we have to think hard about what can be done in the first 10 years, the first decade through 2020, and that is substantially working with the current least cost tools and investing at the same time in the kind of transforming steps that will begin to take each year a larger reduction prospectively through 2020. And what we need to do in the first 10 years, and I, I'll be brief on this and I regret I don't know what already has been covered, is fundamentally three things globally. One hugely important, forestry and agriculture steps. So that's about something less than 50%. 48, 46% by the work of the Global McKinsey Institute, by the work of Project Catalyst that Bill's very close to. We've got to do that, and that will require a huge financing. And one of the key things in thinking about all this financing means from developed to developing countries. And we get then into what's called offsets. I won't try to describe those as a possible means of getting that job done, but it's a least cost path. And then the second thing, and definitely the least cost U.S. step, developing country step, and least cost all around the world, but not having quite the same potential in this first decade, technically, as the forestry steps that could be taken, and that's energy efficiency. And general, California has set the highest standards across the country in that respect, quite notable, but yet more can be done in California. Lots more can be done across the country. And then the last step, the one that in some ways gets the most attention and is incredibly important, and that is we push forth with clean energy sources, renewables, and so on. But in the first decade, those technology steps will have less impact than they need to have in the out years. So that's a very brief summary. You mentioned offsets, and we have a question from the audience about uh, recent reports noted that offsets in the, the bill before Congress will impede real reductions overall. And, and offsets, uh, maybe we should try to define what they are, because they're a big part of both uh, the reductions and also, also the money flow. Would anyone like to go deeper on, on offsets? Let me respond. I, I was a part of the U.S. CAP uh, group, uh, not, not in the final report, but uh, working through the process uh, that's currently in the bill. Uh, the offsets are a mechanism uh, for finding this least cost that John was talking about. It's really important, you know, the best thing you can do for consumers is to reduce the carbon in the cheapest way possible. And one of those tools is to be using uh, the additionality in forest uh, to uh, reduce carbon 
by growing uh, crops, for example, on lands that actually help store carbon in the soil, to put the black back in soils, as I'd like to describe it. Uh, our soils are healthier when we have more carbon in them, so it's, it's a, it's a multi-benefited uh, approach because it, uh, it actually stores uh, uh, more nutrients. It also prevents the runoff of water. It, it keeps soil temperatures lower. It does a whole bunch of things that are very important. So, so that's, that's a really good investment, and it's, and it's one of the early off investments that you can make. And then there's this opportunity that we have to go out and actually find other reductions uh, and help uh, one another. And that's really uh, hunting down the lowest uh, carbon reduction. So, so if a company uh, needs uh, that carbon uh, and another company is willing to, to share their reductions, they can, they can find a way to make that work, which I think is a very important part of the tool. And then finally, you can go into the auction pool and buy, you know, buy the allocation if you want to. So there's, there's multiple ways of covering your bases, uh, but, but they all lead up at the end of the day to car- real carbon reductions, either through carbon capture and storage, uh, through new energy techniques, or through the storage of carbon in soils and in forest. Bill, maybe, what is it, I, I'd be happy to say just a brief word about offsets at a kind of more basic level because I want to underscore there an opportunity and a challenge. Offsets are part of a cap-and-trade program, so across the U.S., across Europe, the most likely federal legislation involves cap-and-trade as opposed to simply taxing or setting carbon prices. There are political reasons for that. There may be some other good reasons, debatable point. But in any event, in a cap-and-trade program, to emit a ton, for example, of greenhouse gas emissions, it will be required that there be a credit for the ton released. And some of the least cost means of reducing carbon will be outside the United States, outside the developed countries. And so for those, there can be developed a system to have offset credits so that the release of the greenhouse gas in the United States is offset by a credit that has a certain value to be applied under the U.S. system. But what's really hard to do is set valid offset processes. So it's quite a complicated thing. It's important to do it. It's hard to do well. And we could, we could spend the remainder of the time on the subject. I won't go further. But we shouldn't fail to try to do that. John Bryson is former uh, chairman and CEO of uh, Southern California Edison. We're discussing climate change at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are Larry Schweiger, president of the National Wildlife Federation, and Bill Riley, chairman of Climate Works. Uh, we have a couple of questions here uh, about uh, something that often doesn't come into this conversation, and that, that is population. Uh, one question here, wouldn't it be help if... Uh, each nation were limited to uh, to one child. Uh, not sure how viable that is. Uh, uh, every every ten years, it says. Uh, there's another one here. Um, <laughs> you could have three ch- three children over the <laughs> per family. Um, another question here uh, about uh, John mentioned food, agriculture, efficiency, renewables. Uh, asking the panel what you think about population as it relates to increases in CO2 emissions. So let's. No takers. Larry, step well, up. Let me say that it's, it's not just – the population is obviously important, and we need to uh, be uh, assisting particularly other nations that are growing rapidly to, to stabilize through, um, through, through, through some supports in that direction. We can't dictate you know, the family sizes. We can't dictate uh, behavior, uh, and we shouldn't try to do that. 
But on the other side of it, we need to understand that our footprint is so much larger than the f- footprint of other nations, and so it's not it's not a, a directly it's not directly correlated just to population. It, it has to do with how much carbon people are emitting. So they're they're really uh, you know there are two problems. They overlap each other, but they're not uh, completely congruent. And so solving one isn't necessarily solving the other. Uh, what we need to do is reduce our carbon emissions worldwide. And uh, we need to focus on the, the most efficient steps for accomplishing that. And also, while we do that, encouraging uh, you know other nations to uh, to address their population challenges. Anyone else on population? Only thing I would say is I think going back to the World Bank report, I think in 1988 or 89, it's very clear the single most effective thing you can do for so many purposes, but certainly for population limitation as well, is to educate the young girls. Yeah. That, that, that raises an interesting question, because that issue is not, not often part of the energy climate debate, uh, clearly. Although, um, I think when Senator Clinton became Secretary of State, she wanted to make some changes in USAID and try to get a more holistic view. Um, so uh, let's, let's move on here. You know, there's some questions here about, we've been talking about economics. What sort of moral dimension is, is there to this? Clearly, all of you have talked to people in developing countries. They say, look, the U.S. and industrialized nations created this problem. You have an obligation to, to do most to solve it. Is that going to hold any sway in Copenhagen, or is it all going to be about hard dollars and cents? I think, I think myself, the degree to which that um, has influence will um, will affect uh, well it does affect a great many other countries who are waiting to get the signal from the United States whether we as the number one emitter historically no not apparently now but uh, historically are willing to accept the responsibilities incumbent upon that fact on that history and to the degree that we do accept it the 20 percent of uh, emissions for which we're responsible within I think begin to have influence on the 80% that we don't control. So I, th- I think it is actually a, a hugely significant reality that uh, President Obama has fundamentally recognized, and the Congress looks like it's on a path eventually to recognize. That will, that will make a great, uh, a great deal of difference. I personally uh, am reluctant to turn uh, too many environmental issues into black and white moral questions, because I think if you do that, you make the kind of compromises that are inevitably going to be part of the democratic process and the international negotiations much more difficult. People lock into very rigid, rigid positions. And also, when you, when you go to developing countries, and I've spent a lot of time in them, uh, and you see a country, for example, like India, which has more than half a billion people without access to latrines, there, there's more than a, than a um, reason of distraction that they're not paying attention to climate. They, they have a lot of other much more immediately pressing problems. And climate, as I was reminded in Rio a long time ago by five ministers, uh, no one was dying in the streets from uh, biodiversity or, or upper atmospheric ozone depletion or, or um, climate change, the major issues from uh, the point of view of the developed countries. So I think one has to keep that in perspective. There are many moral reasons to attend to international development issues. The climate fundamentally can work uh, certainly control of carbon to improve the lives of people worldwide in so many ways. And I would keep that out in front of us. 
that it's not merely something nice to do, but it's, we're going to have a world that is much less habitable and congenial if we don't address the climate problem. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't myself uh, overdo the characterization of uh, moral obligations and how to sort them out. Bill Riley is a former uh, advisor to President George W. Bush on the environment. Bill Bryson, did you George want to George H. W. Bush. George H. W. Bush. <laughs> Forget the H. <laughs> <laughs> is is there a difference? Yeah. John Bryson, did you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, I'll be very brief on the point. I, I agree that it doesn't usually help to frame things in moral terms because they tend to get rigidified. Uh, but you know, many of us feel that there is something of an ethical responsibility here. Even if expressed, however, in utterly pragmatic terms, a reality is that we and the developed nations, we and the richer societies, simply as a pragmatic matter, are going to have to make substantial commitments, not just within our own economies, but around the world, to lead in this change and to help finance and support it in other places around the world or it won't happen. And almost to a unique degree, the climate challenge is a no man is an island phenomenon. We're all in this together. So should we in the richer countries with the greater technology capacity and the greater financing capacity fail to do a substantial part of what has to be done around the world helping others, we simply lose. We get hurt. You uh, spent time as a utility regulator and, and running a, a utility that focused on very sharply on, on cents per hour, kilowatt cents per hour. Can you envision a situation where a company says, look, we need to pay ratepayers or citizens need to pay a penny per kilowatt hour because we need to generate some revenue to, to address the kinds of things that you just talked about, the economic burden, uh, the economic responsibility? Well, uh the short answer in some ways is absolutely yes. What California has done, and it's done it for a long time with the investor-owned utilities, is knowingly incur higher cent per kilowatt hour costs. This is true mm-hmm. for three decades, substantially higher than the U.S. average, in order to invest in the kind of systems we have in California. So. We have the highest level of renewables in the country. We have more investment in smart grid than is done elsewhere. We have much higher investments on the part of the utilities in energy conservation programs in which the utilities incentivize, subsidize. In Southern California Edison, we have 99 separate programs, very expensive. And those contribute to higher cent per kilowatt hour unit costs because you're not spreading then the infrastructure base across as large a set of sales. So California has done that. So, you know, the question, there can be a question about just how high those costs can go, but the reality is California is higher and knowingly higher. That's been part of the regulatory environment for the investor-owned utilities for as long as I've been close to it. Larry, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was going to comment on the, the moral, uh, moral obligation. I, I, I tend to agree that perhaps it doesn't work well in a, in a negotiating setting, but I, I do think that we all need to search our hearts and think about what we're doing 
individually and societally to, to address this problem because if you think about it, we're almost locked into a, a perhaps as much as a three-foot rise in sea level. Well, if you do the math, there's 100 million people who live within three feet of sea level. And so there are a lot of folks who are living in, in the United States, in the world, in the world. Okay. Yeah, three hundred. There's a hundred million people in the world uh, living within that uh, within that zone. I, I recently spoke at a at a, uh, at a global conference for uh, mega deltas and the scientists who are working on mega deltas. Well, if you know anything about deltas, they're all you know low lying landscapes and they're very fertile. They produce a lot of food for this world. And most of those mega deltas are going to be underwater uh, in the next 50 years. So we, we have a moral dimension to this that we need to confront. And I, I must say there's another part of it for me personally. I have two grandsons, and I have a third on the way. And I worry, frankly, about what their world's going to look like as a result of what we're doing. So I, I think it's important for us to uh, examine ourselves and think about what we're doing and how we're uh, acting and what we're doing to advance a solution from a moral frame. But I, I would uh, agree with the others that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, trying to do that in an international negotiation is probably not the, the right place to, to start. So I, I think on a personal level, we, we all need to examine our lives. Larry Schweiger is president of the National Wildlife Federation. Another question from our audience at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, substantial progress to avoid climate change may reduce, require changes in lifestyle, uh, gradually improve what we do. Uh, so how is this going to impact economic growth? Generally, you know, how much is this going to cost or, or hurt? Or is there opportunity in, in, in this transition we need to make? I, uh, I believe that, uh, that there is opportunity. You know, I, w I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't underestimate the cost, particularly in the early years of adapting the economy. Uh, I think we're going to see uh, something like $20 a ton of carbon, and we're big carbon generators and users in the country, and uh, those who continue in that pattern without making the adjustments or the investments are likely to be impacted by that. And I just this afternoon looked at some costs that uh, one electric utility is expecting as a consequence of those numbers, and, and they're considerable, and ratepayers will, of course, be confronted by them, and that's one of the things that has to happen. But one consequence of that is you will create incentives for uh, investments in cleaner fuels, and I think you will first see a run to natural gas in this country. I think we'll very heavily start to see more natural gas used to apply to supply electrical energy. You will also begin to make profitable and, and give a trajectory that is relatively straightforward and predictable and is not the start and stop kind of thing that we've had when in the past when, according to gasoline prices and, and uh, electricity prices or uh, natural gas and oil prices, we all of a sudden get a downturn in those prices and everybody abandons investments in solar and wind, which has happened to us. I think there's much less likelihood of that happening once we get a signal, even if it's even if it's a disappointingly small signal relative to what you and I might like, uh, once the signal is there and the trajectory is relatively clear that that is where the country and that is where the world is going to go, you are likely to see, I think, a, um, a flourishing, a renaissance of interest and investment in new technologies that are cleaner, that are uh, less carbon. And it turns out there are plenty of them around. And then you're also going to see uh, people do the kinds of things that make sense for themselves economically anyway. The cost curves that have been, bun, been done by McKinsey show that there are so many things, particularly the United States can do, that we have not done, uh, some of which uh, other countries have, like Germany have done before now, with respect to insulation and, and all of the rest, 
that uh, will allow us to look forward to a much less expensive future and certainly much less wasteful future with respect to all sorts of things that we now, that we now practices that we now have. You mentioned uh, clean tech. Break, uh, I'd like to mention breakthroughs. Uh, John, uh, if you have a first thought, then ahead, you move along. Um, no, go ahead if you'd like to jump in on that. The, I think that, uh, that it makes sense each in our own lives to be more conservative than we have been. But I guess I just caution on the larger point, the global point, that the huge challenge here is the reality that the developing countries, and particularly the largest developing countries of the world, China, India, we know these things, have what seem to me legitimate aspirations to bring the levels of prosperity in their own countries to the levels that exist in the developed world. So an appeal simply to being more thrifty and more conserving and living less affluent lives is unlikely to be a very successful mantra or theme, it seems to me, in meeting the global challenge here. So it seems to me that what we've got to do, as I indicated just in my first comment, is we've got to do as much as we can in the next decade with the tools we've got but I, for example, have spent a lot of time at Caltech. I happen to live near Caltech in, in Southern California and met last week with uh, seven teams of faculty members who are doing work, faculty members, postdocs, graduate students, doing work on fundamental, fundamental basic research and applied research, physics, chemistry, a whole series of things looking to the possibility of transforming breakthroughs of the sort that without sacrificing the capacity of people in the less developed and particularly the least affluent countries in the world could be by plentiful means at low cost approaches that some decades out would make a difference. So it's not gonna be in my judgment by 2020, I can imagine it by 2030 and it seems to me we ought all, those of us who care so much about this, ought to be big supporters of enhanced basic research and applied transforming research across the country. Then find means to scale it up. What are some examples of big bake breakthroughs that would be game changers uh, on the technology horizon? Well, I can just one? describe... Uh, you know, no one knows what the transforming technology will be. Let's suppose important thing to say. I would love to see 10 Caltechs in the country with a lot of dollar capacity. But I'll describe one at Caltech that just is, to me, exciting. Uh, this is a group of people, seven grants, quite a large number of graduate students, the best in the country. They're not bet better than MIT, but in that vein, I mean, we're talking about the very best that we have, and they're not all of them US citizens, they're working together to develop a photosynthesis process that is entirely synthetic. And the principles here are relatively easy to grasp. Earth abundant materials, so that we don't put ourselves in a position where the materials on which we're relying, as with um, some of the current solar technologies, become scarce, so those aren't driven up high in cost. Simple means of taking to scale once created to capture as close as we can what is the holy grail here, and that is finding a means of converting efficiently sunlight. I mean, the amount of sunlight that falls on the earth in a matter of hours in a single day is sufficient to serve 
the entire world's electricity needs. I mean, we can't, we're not going to get to that level of efficiency, but if we could do these breakthroughs, it's not impossible that we would see opportunities to have a fundamentally different energy system at scale a long ways out. Now, we shouldn't, we should take no actions today that assume anything other than modest evolution from the carbon-intensive infrastructure we have today because we have to be conservative, take steps now against what we have. But we ought to be investing for the future that way. We have a question from the audience about carbon sequestration. Do you think that is possible? Do you think it's a, a fantasy? Do you think we should pursue it? How aggressively? Well, I, I can I'd be happy to talk briefly about that. Uh, our company was working with British Petroleum on such a project. I'll give it, try to give the short version and take it further. You know, there's a fair amount of experience across the world in, in particularly in oil companies, in using <coughs> carbon dioxide uh, and injecting it for enhanced oil recovery. So. There's that experience. There's a lot of experience our company did too, one in Italy, one in California, demonstration projects of gasification of coal to create synthetic fuels for driving electricity. But I think the sequestration point is the toughest one. And when, again, you ask the question at scale, it's one thing to do this for some time frames for carbon, uh, not sequestration, but to enhance oil recovery. There are a limited number of geologic sites that make that practical. So increasingly, there's been looking at, uh, look, people have looked at deep seawater storage of carbon over time. There are formidable environmental issues associated with that. There are environmental associated with deep geologic storage. I'm a believer that we ought to be investing again in looking at this, but it would be way, way too early, I think, to be extremely hopeful. The reason I'm a believer we ought to invest in this is coal is simply an enormously plentiful energy supply, and not just in the U.S., but China. We know China's building the coal plants, more efficient than the, than the current ones, mostly in the U.S., at the rate of about one a week at 1,000 megawatt-a-week scale. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. India has plentiful coal supplies. Russia has plentiful coal supplies. Indonesia has them. So coal's going to go forward. Coal's going to go forward. So we ought to be investing in means potentially of using that as a fuel with low or zero carbon content. But I don't think we ought to count on that. Bill Riley, thoughts on coal? I think uh, John said it very well. The only thing I would have said is that uh, uh, there are there, there is a, a real need for significant investment in the technology to see whether we can make it work. It, it works very well, as you said, for enhanced oil recovery. I think the price per ton of CO2 sequestered by one of the oil companies in the North Sea is $10 a ton. Uh, it's estimated to be around $300 a ton for the uh, oil sands in Canada. Um, trickier problem, uh, di more difficult geology. The uh, possibility of sequestration in algae is something that I first was told about about a year ago and carried around a proposal for a while and didn't even read it because it seemed so preposterously uh, unrealistic to me. I'm told by uh, engineers in, in the energy industry that, in fact, it's not at all, that uh, this could be a very promising technology. I guess my point is that 
because of the uh, point that you acknowledge about the abundance of coal and the inevitability that it will be used by the Chinese, the Indians, the Australians, the Indonesians, and the Americans, we simply have to solve this problem. We have to find a way to make coal usable and consistent with our, uh, our health and our climate. And I would be, uh, I would hope that that uh, the, what is it, $15 billion that's proposed now for um, uh, sequestration um, demonstrations and experimentation, I would hope that that does begin to address this problem sometime in the relatively near future. And, and one number I have seen uh, maybe too optimistic is 2020. We're discussing the road to the United Nations climate change negotiations in Copenhagen. Our guests at the Commonwealth Club are Bill Riley, chairman of the Climate Works Foundation, Larry Schweiger, president of the National Wildlife Federation, and John Bryson, retired chair of Southern California Edison and Edison International. I'm Greg Dalton. A uh, couple of questions here. Uh, let's have these to, to Larry Schweiger. Um, how do we reconcile the difference between the U.S. Congress uh, what the U.S. Congress will pass and what the science tells us we need to stay mm. below two degrees. Another one, uh, our nation's top client, uh, climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen of NASA, published a paper last year stating that we must reduce CO2 to 350 parts per million. What additional information and political pressure will be required to convince the countries uh, to adopt this target? Yeah, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you going to do that, Larry? <laughs> Let's start with uh, the numbers. Uh, at 350 parts per million, we have between a zero and 30% chance of staying below a two-degree rise in temperature. So, so Dr. Hansen targeted 350 to keep it uh, you know, in, that, in that range. So even his number is uh, probably high. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a 281 guy myself, but uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the challenge with that is that... Uh, you know, the challenge that we have is getting um, the science to align with the politics is really getting the American public to understand the urgency of this issue. You know, the American public understands we have a problem, uh, but we're not breaking through with the, the latest in science. For example, uh, Dr. Katie Walter and others have been studying the thermal karst lakes in Siberia and are seeing that methane is now leaking at five times the rate the IPCC suggested it would be leaking at this point in time. Uh, the Canadian boreal forests are, are now uh, in such decline that they are net producers of carbon, not net sequesters of carbon. The last three of the last four years and nine of the next ten years, they're going to be giving off more carbon in those systems than they've been storing. And as you warm up the, the North Country, uh, looking out about 900 miles from uh, the North Pole, you see that the rapid increase in temperature that we've already experienced there, and it's like unplugging your refrigerator and allowing things to start decomposing. And we're seeing uh, that process begin in earnest, and uh, it's outpacing, again, uh, the worst science. So, so we have a problem, and it's a serious one. But until the lawmakers from across this country hear from their citizens and their voters demanding the kind of actions, uh, we're simply not... Uh, going to be able to pass the, the the kind of goals that we need to get this this uh, this job uh, further along. But what we can't do, and I would urge us and those of us uh, who are deeply passionate about this, I would urge us not to throw the, throw out this bill because it's not good enough. Because, in fact, we need to get started. We need to move uh, the process forward. We need to get the infrastructure in place. 
Uh, there's a lot of complications to this whole trading mechanism, to measuring how much carbon we have in, in agricultural soils and forest and, 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 and putting all these elements together. It's going to take us a long time to get that hammered out. So let's, let's get the basic framework in place and let's get our scientists to come back to us with better advice on, on the kind of numbers that we need to achieve. I, I would say, based on the modeling that I've looked at, that we need to get about a 5% reduction per year in order to, to avoid that 2-degree rise in temperature. But that's, that, that's work that we, you know, we, we can do better as we, as we start down the road. You know, it's like a car. It's easier to turn the wheel when the car is actually moving than when it's sitting still. And right now, our car is sitting still. It's not moving forward. So I, I think we, we take that first step uh, w- with this legislation. Uh, we, we continue to educate the American public about the, the threats that are before us. And we continue to work around the world to bring uh, a clear understanding of our challenge. And, um, and working together, I, I truly believe that we can, uh, we can win this thing. We can still turn it around, but we need to work uh, together in ways that we've never uh, worked before. And that includes Republicans and Democrats. I, I'm so pleased uh, to be on the stage with Bill Riley because he reminds me of the days when, when we had great Republican leadership uh, doing really good work. And uh, my hat is off to you, Bill, for your leadership and, uh, in those years. And I hope we can get back there. We have both Republicans and Democrats uh, working together. Which leads to another question from the audience. Uh, Senator Inhofe has stated <laughs> that the Republican strategy is to delay the Waxman-Markey uh, bill, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, until we have a new president. Uh, can we overcome that opposition? Um, and I believe that the uh, former governor, uh, George Allen, former governor of Virginia, formed a new group just this last week that's aimed at affordable electricity and, and fighting, uh, putting a price on, on carbon. So let's talk about... Uh, Larry, you're inside the Beltway. Let's talk yeah, about. They're the... both good friends of yours, I think. Yeah. yeah, right. I think. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think the Republicans that are acting uh, the way they're acting are making a huge mistake uh, because um, they're outside of the the pale of science. They're outside of the pale of public opinion. And in fact, I would suggest if you look at the numbers, it's a wedge issue. The, the Democrats should really be going after the Republicans because there are enough Republicans in all the polls to actually make a majority who, who want to see action on climate. And, uh, for example, we're working with the, the, the Christian Coalition of America, uh, and they've polled their members, and their members want to see action. So I, I'm not sure who these folks are really dancing for, but they're not dancing for the American public that we've uh, pulled and I and I think it's a, it's a huge mistake politically as well as a huge mistake uh, uh, morally. There was a time, you know, in the early phases, not just the early phases of our environmental rally in America, when so many of the major pieces of legislation were passed that we now we now revere. When um, re- there were bipartisan approaches to the enactment of these bills, and when the Republican contribution was largely to try to keep the focus on science. That typically was the angle of attack against some of those bills, and it was sometimes warranted. But science, we we could all agree, should determine the direction that public policy and the environment and natural resources should go. At a time when we have had uh, 11 National Academies of Science opine on this problem, and say that uh, there is a human contribution 
to the climate change, and a significant one, uh, when we have so much reinforcing scientific information now, and not just computer models, which in my time was all we had, we have observations now in Alaska and, and Canada and so many of the other places, as you mentioned. It seems to me increasingly untenable to maintain the position that uh, the science isn't there, these are natural phenomena, they're cyclical, and uh, human activities are not contributing to them. So I don't know how long that position can be held. I suspect until the first natural calamity that people are able to associate somewhat with, um, with uh, climate change. It, it has struck me as I've been a member of the Governor's Blue Ribbon Task Force on the Future of the Delta, and I'm kind of amazed, and I myself had to learn in the course of serving on that, that task force for two years, that we expect a three to five foot sea level rise in the Delta which will cause some 1,100 miles of levees to be inundated. By, by when? In this century, yeah. with, with recognizable impacts uh, within the lifetimes of most of the people here in this room. Why has that received so little attention uh, by the leadership of the state, or so little action to address it? Uh, that's, and that's very close to home. That's very near term. That's something we can all look out the window and see. It is a bit of a mystery that obviously there are many things on people's minds, but uh, one thing I really hope the president, with his enormous capacity to communicate, will take on is a, uh, an amplification of the message of science and the future of the country and the world if we don't address the problem. John Bryson? I, I can't help but tell a brief story. This is on the Republicans and the Democrats and the <laughs> Republican contribution. I have a good Democrat. I should lead that with that. but. <laughs> When a group of us, a uh, bunch of young guys, when I was, hair was darker than it is now, were setting up the Natural Resources Defense Council, we ran into a big obstacle. We couldn't get the 501c3 necessary tax exemption. And it was just a bunch. You know, the Ford Foundation had surprisingly given us a little money. And this was during the Nixon administration, and this was denied to us. And we, and there were a lot of comparable groups that, that had already received these exemptions. But we'd been a little controversial in the newspapers and other places. Uh, and the guy that made the difference, the guy that made the difference was a congressman, less well-known at the time, a senior congressman, Gerald Ford. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Ford, who had gone to Yale Law School, where us, a group of us had gone, stepped up and he implored President Nixon and the then head of the Internal Revenue Service to grant the 501c3 to us, and that was the launching of NRDC, and he was the kingmaker. He mm -hmm. made the difference. Yeah. Good story. Um, yeah. And NRDC, the Republican Party, has long been proud of. You indirectly mentioned another Republican, which is Governor Schwarzenegger. What do you think uh, he or the California should do to keep the United States moving toward, uh, toward Copenhagen in a, in a assertive way? Bill, what, what would you like to see? Well, I think the governor has, has given us good leadership on these issues. I think his, uh, and, and it's important in talking about Republicans to recognize that uh, he is notable as a Senator McCain, who's a consistent leader on the climate issue in the Senate for many years now, uh, and others, Senator Warner. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the example that California has set, which uh, John Bryson referred to, of uh, efficiency relative to the averages of electrical use in other, electricity use in other states, is itself uh, something that is useful to remind 
people in the rest of the country of. It is possible, and uh, the ninth largest economy in the world has been moving ahead of uh, much of the rest of the country to uh, use its electrical energy more efficiently. The um, low carbon fuel standard that the governor has proposed is uh, definitely a step in the right, right direction, and uh, he notably got support from a wide variety of groups, including ConocoPhillips uh, Corporation, for the development of that standard. Um, I think some of the research that has been encouraged in this state is vital to uh, uh, cellulosic ethanol, for example, and to clean fuels being developed. And then we have, of course, uh, the Pavley Bill, which uh, the state is working very hard to try to uh, understand, implement, and make uh, congruent and consistent with the national approach to the issue, which is very important. All of these things put California on a path that can make us proud, I think. We yeah. have about two minutes left. John Bryson. I wanna, I, Governor Schwarzenegger has really been a leader, so he deserves credit, and he's done things that I think no person otherwise in his position could do. And he succeeded a Democrat who didn't do any of those things, so he deserves credit. I want to say one other thing, and that is maybe it's already been said, but you know, we ought to take great pride in our state mm -hmm. for a fun, I mean, just one fundamental statistics. We've been, we've across clean energy, we've garbled our budget, we've garbled a bunch of things, but one thing <laughs> we've gotten right is this. So, you know, since the late 1970s, California has had zero growth in per capita energy consumption when the rest of the country, on average, has had 40% growth. And per capita, that, 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 hasn't, that hasn't happened accidentally. That's happened for some of the reasons we talked about, which, among other things, went to the price acceptance of a slightly higher price of, of electricity per kilowatt hour than is accepted elsewhere. You know, it's a more complicated subject than that, but there have been no, this, is, this isn't, didn't happen five years ago, didn't happen 10 years ago. It's been true since the oil price yep. spi spikes of the, of the 1970s. If uh, Peter Darby were here, he'd point out that the kilowatt hours are higher in, in California, but the actual bills are lower because of, of some of the conservation mm -hmm. appliance and, and that, that sort of thing. That's it's true uh, for residential customers. Of course, it's not true for industrial users of okay. electricity. We're at the end of our time here. I'd like to have one last question from the audience and have each of you respond briefly. If you were President Obama, what would you direct your climate negotiator to say to the Chinese on, on three or more yes, points uh, regarding uh, Copenhagen? And uh, let's, let's leave it there. So, you know, I thought a lot about that and talked to a number of people, one of whom was uh, the former Secretary of State, James Baker. And I think he's gone public with his view that, uh, in an op-ed in the Financial Times, that the proper approach is for the United States to move to design a system which we are prepared to enact and implement, but not enact and implement it, until we have gone to China and shown it to the Chinese and said, are you prepared to make comparable commitments consistent with your own stage of development and allowing for your own um, opportunity to, to grow and, and uh, and develop. Um, that is one approach, um, and I'm not sure, frankly, whether it would be as effective as an approach which acts and recognizes the contribution of the United States, which has been disproportionate to the creation of the problem, prepares to address it in the United States with our own uh, legislation, 
accepting possibly in the short term a competitive disadvantage with a country and its economy and its businesses, its corporations, its manufacturers who don't have the same obligations, but essentially um, invites China to acknowledge the responsibilities that go with its uh, emerging great power status. And there are people I respect who believe that that might be as effective or even more. And it's consistent with the kinds of questions that the Chinese have been asking uh, many of, of what is a respectable position that we can bring to Copenhagen. Uh, that I would leave it to the audience to think, uh, and those who know China better than I do, uh, I've been going there for about 10 years with the China Sustainable Energy Program of the Energy Foundation. And, um, and I am actually uh, somewhat enamored of that latter position. On the other hand, I have been co-chair of the National Commission on Energy Policy and our business representatives, business members, were adamant that they would not themselves commit, and they didn't, in fact, commit to an open-ended agreement to support climate legislation in the United States without, in 2015 or so, having a look back, a review, a periodic assessment of whether, in fact, over that period, one of our principal competitors, which is China, had done something comparably significant and did not exploit the opportunity to have this competitive advantage. So I'm aware that of various views on this, but um, I think uh, the game is going to be decided, I think, to a large extent before Copenhagen and, and after by what the United States and China can do together. And um, I, uh, I have hopes that with the major efficiency improvements and commitments to them, 20% improvement in uh, efficiency um, that China has made over the last few years, they are headed in the right direction. They're going to have automobile fuel efficiency standards that are significantly ahead of ours. Even in 2015, they're going to be at 42. We're at 36. So uh, there are reasons to be optimistic and hopeful about China, um, and, uh, and I am. Larry Schweiger, really briefly. Uh, briefly, I would say that the, the bilateral uh, negotiations between U.S. and China today are really critical. We ought to be paying close attention to that. Collectively, the two nations represent about 40% of the total carbon emissions. So if we can find a path forward with China, we can, we can spread it to the other 20, uh, 18 countries that, that represent about 80% of the total emissions. And I think that's the way we, we build the deal out. I think it's important for us to work with China. John Bryson, last word. Well, I'm cautiously, cautiously encouraged by the steps that the Chinese have been taking in the last two or three years, in particular in fields like electric transportation, which is extraordinarily important in its impact on greenhouse gas emissions worldwide, and battery development, which is related. They see economic opportunities to lead around the world with clean energy technologies. So they increasingly are using mandates uh, <clears throat> to advance the things they care about, I believe there's a growing sense that their standing in the world, which they care about, depends on their being partners in this mm -hmm. exercise. Mm -hmm. We've been discussing the United Nations negotiations on climate change in Copenhagen. Our guests have been John Bryson, retired chairman and CEO of Edison International, Larry Schweiger, president of the National Wildlife Federation, and Bill Riley, chairman of Climate Works. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and now this meeting is adjourned. Thank <laughs> you.